welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. In this special episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing my partner, Helena Tetzeli. Helena is a partner at Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and has been so for a very long time, practicing in the areas of immigration and commercial law. She's, of course, brilliant, and she's lectured, written articles, and is regularly a speaker at Florida Bar, Federal Bar Association, and AILA events. Every year, she's recognized as one of the top international immigration and corporate lawyers in America in the various publications. And she's also a really nice person. Helena and I talk about a lot of stuff, including her background, her family, what got her into immigration, all the crazy things she experienced coming up in the legal profession in the 1980s, and the changes implemented by the previous administration on her bread and butter of employment, immigration, and commercial litigation. Thanks for making the time to speak with me, Helena, and I hope everybody enjoys this interview. Hello, everybody. I'm here with my friend and with my partner at Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, Helena Tetzeli. Helena's been an immigration attorney for a long time, not to out you, Helena. And so she has a lot to offer. And we don't usually it's talk- all in the public domain, Kevin. <laughs> and um, we don't usually talk about employment visas on the podcast. So I'm really excited to have this talk. Thanks for being here today, Helena. Thank you for having me, Kevin. And I'm honored and flattered to be on your podcast. It's gotten such a great reputation and it's spreading like wildfire. So I'm very happy to be on. That's what they say, and that's what I tell you. So keep thinking that. It's fantastic. So thank you for being here. I'm sure a lot of the listeners know you, but for those who don't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up coming to immigration law? Uh, it was a long and winding road, um, not to paraphrase the Beatles. Um, there I go dating myself. They were actually before my time. Okay, I was a child during the British invasion. <laughs> but anyways, um, I didn't really have a vocation to be a lawyer. I came, I, I came to be a lawyer and then an immigration lawyer 
kind of circuitously. My father was a public defender in Cuba and was unable to continue practicing law once he uh, fled to the U.S. with with my family. So I kind of wanted to honor that. Um, And then after college, I loved college. I loved being a student. I thought I wanted to extend that a little bit. And the options were either academia uh, and continuing to study international relations, which is what my major was, or there's always law school. You know, I I got accepted at the University of California, uh, Hastings, uh, University of California, San Francisco. And I'm sure I was the first graduate of Florida National University that was accepted there. In terms of how I came to be an immigration lawyer, I took an immigration law seminar, I think my second or third year, and was already reading in the paper about IRA's uh, Supreme Court cases and um, 11th Circuit victories um, with the Haitian refugee cases and then the attorney's fees litigation that followed. Let the record reflect that is Ira Kurzban you are yes, speaking of. Course. He's like Madonna. There's like one. He only has a first name. (laughs) He is is nothing like Madonna. Okay. No. Anyways, I uh, had heard of Ira, read about Ira. And uh, so took a class. Of course, I'm an immigrant. Uh, My parents are immigrants. I'm an immigrant. Uh, So I'm sure it felt some sort of uh, resonated with me. I was interested in immigration in general. And then seeing that a Miami lawyer was doing you know, such amazing things and in such a high profile way that appealed to me. And it also brought me back to Miami in a way, because I was torn at the time between whether I would stay in California or um, come back to Miami. I think, you know, the story of how I applied for a second year clerkship. Well, I, well, I know the story and Mm -hmm. I was going to bring it up, but for, for all the listeners who don't know the story, what happened when you first applied to work at the law firm that currently bears your name? I got dinged. I got dinged like two months after I applied. I and uh, I got a letter back from Ira saying essentially they were out of room. They didn't have any more office space in the yeah, office. Right. I'm like what? What a great excuse. Um, I'm gonna call BS. They 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 have a big they had a big office. They, no, they, no, they had a small okay. office at the time. Uh, but and I actually after I was hired, I found the letter in my personnel file and had it framed next to the letter where I was made a partner (laughs) on my wall. That's how you know the story, because I think you saw it on my wall. So I applied it. So I I got a clerkship. I mean, I survived Ira's rejection. I got a second year clerkship with a very well-known New York firm, uh, their branch in Miami. Did not like it. Corporate law firm, kind of like a mausoleum during the day, very quiet. And then that firm dissolved that year. The New York firm went under the Miami you know, branch was closed. So wow. nobody got an offer. <laughs> and I wouldn't probably wouldn't have accepted it anyway. Went back to law school, came back, was studying for the bar in Miami, decided had decided to come back to Miami and uh, saw that the firm was still looking <laughs> for a clerk. So I applied again and this time got an interview. And then I was hired as a clerk, passed the bar and became an associate. Uh, and the rest is is history. Well, that's quite the octopus's garden of a story. Um, before we move on, what got you to apply again? I mean, I don't think many people would apply again after being rejected. I don't know. That's a good question. No one's asked me that. Um, we ask the hard questions on the Immigration Review podcast. I, I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about it. No one's asked me that before. But I think I probably took him at his word in his first in the first, in the rejection letter, he, 
he did claim to think that I had an impressive resume and that the only reason um, they weren't going to hire me was because I didn't have room. So I thought I'll try. Maybe, maybe they fired some people and they have some room now. And uh, somehow I got the interview and I remember the interview with Ira. Just think I decided why not? What have I got to lose? What was Ira like in interviews in the 1980s? It's very nice. He was uh, funny, dissing other law schools, and talking about Berkeley and University of California in general, and talking about when he went there. It's a time of a lot of foment when when he was there. I was there in the late 80s, so it was a little calmer. You know, it's Reagan's America. And so, what kind of cases were you working on with the firm uh, in the late? 80s, early 90s? I initially, I was hired by Ira. And there were two other partners and two other departments in the firm. We still have three departments. We have the immigration law department, uh, the tort litigation department, primarily medical malpractice and serious personal injury, and commercial corporate. So I was hired by Ira, so ostensibly for immigration law, and that's why I applied. And I initially was doing only immigration law work. And quickly, I started doing commercial and civil rights litigation as well. But with Ira, initially, I was doing a lot of asylums, family petitions. Uh, this was what there were still cases from Amnesty and the special agricultural worker programs from the early 80s that were in the pipeline. We had an office in Little Haiti. And so every Saturday, I went and met Ira at the Little Haiti office. And that was kind of our neighborhood grassroots office where we, we charged most, but they were more low bono type cases. Mm-hmm. And we were handling mainly uh, special agricultural workers. So saw cases and amnesty cases and family cases and Nats cases for primarily Haitian and Haitian American clients. And I do remember, especially the first couple of years, you know, AIDS was still a big problem. There really weren't the the treatments that there were now for AIDS. And I don't know, people who might be younger than me may not realize that it had afflicted the Haitian population a lot. And so we were getting, people would come in with denial letters from immigration that they couldn't even read because their first language is say Creole. And we would have to inform them that they were inadmissible because at the time, being HIV positive was a basis for inadmissibility. So people being denied adjustment because their uh, medical you know, examination had revealed to the USCIS officer that they were HIV positive. So we had to break this to people. It was, could be very uh, traumatic. Is there even a way to fight that? The law has changed since then. Um, there was a waiver. I don't remember if there was always a waiver. There was a waiver at some point in the 80s or 90s. And then eventually, of course, it's no longer a basis for inadmissibility. That's interesting. When I think of the SAW program, I don't think of Haitians. Is am I just totally wrong with a West Coast bias, or were there were there many agricultural workers in the Haitian community in the? In the there 80s? were there were agricultural workers in the Haitian community, and we had clients. You know, obviously Mexicans or Central Americans in South Florida um, that qualified. I think most of our cases were amnesty cases, straight amnesty cases, not SAW. What an amazing president for immigration Ronald Reagan was. We had a different Congress then. We had a, and we had, I think, more bipartisanship. And you hadn't had this demonization of, of immigrants that has occurred over the last, certainly the last four years. 
So when you started working for the firm and for the first few years, that was the, I guess, the glory years and the the end run of 212C relief, right? That yeah. that, fa- that fabulous form of relief. What I really miss 212C relief. Yeah. What was it like to be able to go into immigration court and just say, judge, she committed a crime, but let her stay? Well, it wasn't that easy. Yeah, these were, these were tra- very heavy on the facts more than the law. And the judges, judges had discretion back then. Uh, there were some very good judges, I think, in the Miami District Office um, back in the day, though. Not that there aren't now. Uh, and, you know, you put on your case, you'd have as I always wanted to have as many witnesses as possible. I remember going to visit witnesses in person to prepare them because you want to obviously defang any recidivism, any criminal record. It was very important to appear remorseful, actually be, but certainly present as remorseful. Uh, So a lot of intense preparation for cross-examination, for direct examination, and trying to recruit as many witnesses as possible. Uh, It was always interesting to meet these witnesses and kind of debrief them and decide how you're going to present your client. Uh, Hardship was obviously a factor. I remember I had a case where I got 212C relief for a Canadian we were able to establish that he was a very valued uh, employee of a, a small U.S. company here and uh, industrial manufacturing company, and his work family had become his family. And we had his boss come in and all his co-workers and some of the clients he'd worked for. And to me, that was like the most miraculous C2C case I want because he was Canadian. He really did not want to go back to Canada. He liked Florida a lot. Well, there are some very cold provinces in in Canada, so I I can see I can see that argument. Yes, but it was great. I mean, two twelve C relief allows for redemption, for second chances for people, and I think it really is a tragedy that you don't. I mean, you have cancellation, but this was a lot more flexible than cancellation of removal, non LPR cancellation, and it really did. I think save a lot of families, and I think help the country. A lot of these people have been here for years, uh, working, paying taxes, not recidivists, and allowed people to prove themselves again. It's a shame that doesn't exist anymore. I agree. So now at the firm, you primarily work in employment-based immigration, is that correct? And in addition to business litigation in federal and state court. What kind of employment visas do you deal with most often? You know, employment law is kind of a smorgasbord of letters. Which ones yeah. are which ones are the ones you like the most and deal with the most? It's it it varies. It fluctuates depending on uh, the administration. Apparently, uh, so for many years I was doing a lot of L visas and some E visas, and um, I think starting in maybe the end of the Obama years, and certainly with the DOS administration, L visas were just, uh, the word got out <laughs> that you were not welcome here if you were asking for an L visa. Um, they were, I, I continue to do them, but especially under the Trump administration, there were so many denials and the RFEs that were being issued were just reached a new level of ridiculousness. And it got to so expensive to prepare and then defend these cases against requests for evidence. Uh, then, you know, people started suing. But, you know, there are many companies, individuals that are not interested in going to federal court. They don't want to take the risk. They don't want to, you know, take on the burden and the cost. 
And people, I, I do think people started, would-be immigrants, high-level employees, companies started to look at other options like Canada or offshoring uh, talent, I think to our detriment economically. Uh, but I and I am seeing a spike now. I'm d- getting more interest in L visas. Um, I think people are getting the signal that the new administration, certainly while not getting off to a perfect start, does not hate immigrants and, and wants to encourage investment in the U.S. and mobility between talent coming to the U.S. and other countries. E-visas were seen as kind of an easier lift than an L because you don't need the initial petition to be approved by USCIS. Well, and, before before mm-hmm. we get into the E, so what, what mm-hmm. is an L visa? Oh, okay. What is required sure. of an L visa? So an L visa is a visa for uh, a multinational employee. Um, it can be an executive or manager or an employee with specialized knowledge. And it's for an employee who's being transferred from a branch or parent or subsidiary outside the U.S. into the U.S. to work for a branch in the U.S. or a subsidiary typically or affiliate of the foreign company in the United States. And so long as you have a multinational organization, meaning a branch here, a branch abroad, and there are other requirements that are met by the would-be transferee, uh, they have to have either been a specialized knowledge, management or executive employee abroad for at least a year full time, then you can transfer this employee over to the US in in this category. There's no minimum investment required, unlike an e-visa or unlike an EB-5, you know, green card. It is not a green card. It's a non-immigrant visa, but it can be renewed for up to seven years. And I think every single one of my clients that got an L eventually was able to adjust status and get a green card here because it was a comparable employment-based immigrant visa category for multinational executives or managers uh, that allows the U.S. company to avoid having to go through the labor certification perm process for the employee. Right. Right. You can get an L visa, an L non-immigrant visa if you meet all the qualifications. And then when it's time for the employee, the manager to apply for a green card, it's a very similar analysis under a different visa Not the same part of the statute, not the same regs, but very similar analyses, exactly. And they're positioned in a way for the green card without having to go through the perm process. And I don't want to, I'm oversimplifying. You don't have to have an L visa to qualify in the EB1C category. That's just one kind of classic way of routing an employee from a non-immigrant status to a green card. Well, we try to and, simplify on the podcast, so that's fantastic. <laughs> and the the other advantage is that you can be from any country. It's not unlike the E, the non-immigrant visa for investors or inter- enterprises here engaged in trade between the U.S. and another country. You don't need a particular treaty of friendship and commerce between the U.S. and the other country. Uh, so Venezuelans, for example, Miami, we're taking advantage, uh, not in a bad way, but uh, seeing the opportunity that the L visa provided, um, because Venezuela is not one of the countries that has the an E visa treaty with the U.S., so they couldn't qualify for the E, but they could qualify for the L. And they're very entrepreneurial. A lot of Venezuelans have businesses over there. They were happy to expand here. They saw the way things were going in Venezuela and thought, you know, maybe I want to have a plan B. Let me get my L visa and invest in the U.S., start working here. And just in case, you know, things get worse, I'll have this other option. Uh, so there are a lot of, um, most of my clients um, were Venezuelans who um, who I represented in L visas and then EB1Cs. Not all of them, but most of them. And I felt like 
that was bringing me full circle back because I'm a Cuban immigrant. Venezuela and Cuba, what's happened in those countries is, is very similar. It was, I felt like I was giving back and guiding other immigrants who were going through something kind of a slow motion Cuba to come here and prosper here. Well, that, that does bring up an interesting point I wanted to get to. Your last name is Tetzeli. It is the part of the firm name that is repeatedly messed up when people introduce me. I'm sure that you've had that experience in life, but I don't believe Tetzeli is very Cuban. It's not Hispanic at all. My father is Czech. He was born in probably Czechoslovakia. I think it was, Czech, it was Czechoslovakia when he was born there. It wasn't Austria-Hungary. We were fleeing from totalitarianism, mm. fascism. Dad's family fled from the Nazis. And his family, they, they had titles. They were very comfortable there. Um, well, let, let's hold up. I'm not going to let oh, you just okay. go past. Well, what's, what do you mean they had titles? I want to get down into this. They, my dad's father was a baron and his mother was a countess. Baron von Tetzeli. Yeah, he was Austrian, actually. My oh, great-grandfather. Wow. My great, this is my great-grandfather was Austrian and, you know, one of these guys with the big, like, spiky hat and the mustache and actually was with Franz Ferdinand, was it Franz Ferdinand and his wife the three days before they were assassinated, thus triggering World War One. I. I have a Whoa. picture of that with the Archduke and Duchess three days before they go to Sarajevo and get shot by an anarchist. I Wow. I'll bring it to the office. No, I'll show you. You are deep into European history. It must have I been am. crazy. And I feel for- so Cuban. Because <laughs> right. I'm in Miami. I've been in Miami for so long. But I mean, that must have been, don't get me wrong. It's it's a wild thing to flee Cuba as your mom's side of the family did. But oh, I'm not even, I'm done. Wait, so let me finish. So, Oh my God. Okay, so they are Czech Austrian nobility. Um, and my grandmother was very progressive for her time. She was a Czech nationalist. Czechoslovakia was a democracy at the time. It's a very progressive place. She believed in it. And so they fled when the Nazis essentially annexed Czechoslovakia. And they went to Belgium first, and then Belgium was invaded. So then they went to France, and then France was invaded. They got visas. And this we just found out in the last couple of years. They ended up making it to Cuba because Cuba was accepting people, at least some people. And my grandfather got a job with a like a sugar mill there. And they had to get visas to get to Cuba, no, to get to Portugal. Portugal was a neutral. So they got visas from the Portuguese consul in Bordeaux. And this consul, it turned out later, he was kind of like a Schindler from Portugal. So even though Portugal was neutral, it was more of an Axis sympathizing power than, than not. And he was issuing visas to Jews and to refugees that he shouldn't have been issuing. And like later he lost his job and he was ostracized. Same with Sousa de Mendes. And we found out like two years ago that that's how we'd gotten the visas. We actually found online like a manifest with my grandfather's name, my grandmother's name, my dad's name and his brother's name showing they'd been given these visas to enter Portugal. And then they boarded a cruise ship to get to Havana. So that's how my father got to Cuba. My, my mother's family, her father was an artist, very well-known artist in Spain. And during the Spanish Civil War, even though he was right-wing, because he was an artist, Franco's side assumed he was really left-wing. So he got on this list of, of people who you don't want to be on a list with <laughs> and had to flee to Cuba with my mom. 
So that's how both my parents ended up in Cuba, both fleeing fascism. So they fled fascism, ended up in Cuba, and then, of course, had to flee communism, or I, I still see it as a version of totalitarianism. A couple of years after the revolution, they came here. It's just unfathomable what people of that generation went through. Went yeah. through. It's, it's just incredible. You know, all these systems were put in place that, well, eventually the EU and the common market and NATO that, that have helped. And one of the worst things about the last administration was how those things were just kind of depreciated and not respected. And I mean, hopefully that, that trend is at least halted for a while. But yeah, I mean, I don't think people change that much. You have to have these systems that are in place that help protect us from ourselves. Thank you for that. I've never heard any of that, by the way, Immigration Review podcast listeners. So no, that wasn't pre-planned. None of this is. We are an authentic podcast. Exactly. Back to employment immigration. What's some of the interesting stuff we're doing at the firm right now uh, in that realm with the change in administrations and just, I don't know, something that people might find interesting? Well, with the change of administration, I'm just noticing not so much interesting, but it's still heartening that I, I think there's an, up, there's an uptick in an interest in businesses and, and investors coming back to the U.S. The last four years, uh, we were seen as kind of being closed, not welcoming at all. And I think that's good for the economy and for the world in general. In terms of interesting, uh, it's been a minefield because of the pandemic uh, with all the bans, geographic bans, the COVID bans. Um, we've been advising some of the major league players unions trying to start their seasons, you know, um, in the middle of the, in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of, remember, wasn't that long ago, but it seems like it was a while ago that all these seasons were suspended or delayed and uh, these major league ball seasons. So I think eventually every league did have a season, although shortened. And so we were, it was interesting and in trying to explain and, and help the unions advise players on how they were going to come back from whether it's Europe, Brazil, all over the world to be able to participate. There was some interesting research I was involved in, and I ended up writing an article for AILA on whether or not closures due to the pandemic resulted in invalidating a player's P visa or O visa, for example. Is that the same as a work stoppage caused by a strike? So it was interesting just kind of living this, you know, as an immigration lawyer, because global mobility was virtually ground to a halt. The, the pandemic and employment law in general, the non-family-based immigration law, it can be very non-forgiving. And it certainly is not organized to account for a global pandemic. Last week on the podcast, we discussed this 10th Circuit case in which an individual went out of student status because he was imprisoned for 13 months for a rape that he ultimately was not convicted under uh, after a jury trial. But the 10th Circuit still said you fell out of status, even though it wasn't your fault, even though you didn't do it. And a lot of those considerations are at play with employment visas, which are similar in a lot of respects to student status, and then how you can adjust status because you can't go out of status, at least with some exceptions. It's just been chaotic with COVID because it just does not account for any of that. No, it's very, and it, the employment-based visas generally are much more technical than, say, family-based cases or even naturalization cases. And yeah, there's very little room for error. And yes, unlike the immediate relative of a U.S. citizen, you can't adjust status uh, with exceptions. Um, and there's some, there's a safe harbor. 
for a limited period of time. If you are seeking to adjust status through an, an employer's petition, for example, EB-5, you know, was also affected because of the, not just pandemic, not, not sorry because of the pandemic, because there was no ban for EB-5 immigrant visas, but uh, the increase in the um, minimum investment requirements and some of the other changes to the EB-5 program have negatively impacted it. I, I'm not optimistic that's going to change anytime soon. So yeah, across the board, all immigration was affected, um, but certainly because of the resulting impact on the economy, employment-based immigration as well was, was extremely negatively impacted. Although again, I'm seeing in, you know, more interest now and the economy in general is doing better now, you know, gradually things are going to get better. But it was a really scary time for a lot of companies, employees, people calling constantly. You probably remember this discussion, you know, H-1B employees who were here, can they get, you know, is it okay if they accept the stimulus? Can they get unemployment compensation? So um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of questions that most immigration attorneys don't normally have to answer, you know, kind of the overlap between state law, federal law, non-immigration federal law and immigration law. Right. So it was uh, helpful to be a kind of uh, well-versed in different areas of the law, commercial law, business law, labor law, if you were advising employees and employers in the beginning of last year. And if you advise wrong because employment law and employment adjustment of status is so harsh, you're in big trouble. <laughs> yeah. If you if you exactly. say if you say you can work, if you say you can accept this mm-hmm. benefit and you can't, you may have just prevented a non-citizen from obtaining a green card in the future for all time. Yep, exactly. It can be very daunting. So, the Trump presidency is gone. Um, Donald Trump is in hibernation. But the argument still is made often by mostly Republicans, but also some progressive Democrats, that employment immigration is not a net good for the United States. And even if it is a net good on an individual level, maybe a manufacturing town in the Midwest or something, it has really harsh consequences because it takes away jobs or it shifts the benefit of those jobs overseas. What is your argument for why all of that is not true? Well, I mean, nothing is is perfect. And I do think you want certain incentives to exist in our immigration laws that help the U.S. economy as a whole. But, and I'm biased because I'm an immigrant and I've created jobs, but I think in general, immigration, even illegal immigration or undocumented immigrants are a net good for the U.S. Some in ways that are very easy to understand. The more people you have here, um, the more people you have to support our still sketchy, terrible social safety net. We have a low birth rate. Native-born Americans, we have a a low birth rate. We need people to work and contribute to our tax base to fund Social Security, for example, and other programs. We need people to come and create jobs. We need investment. So in terms of legal immigration, You've got companies and individuals who want to invest here. They want to create jobs. They want to pay taxes. They want to develop new industries or innovations. All these things have kind of a domino or snowball effect, and they create more jobs and more innovation. And it's well established. It's been for years that immigrants tend to innovate more than U.S. citizens. They tend to come up with patents. They tend to um, start companies 
at a higher rate than native-born U.S. citizens. They have to, you know, whether it's not that they're better necessarily, but they have to. And that creates an incentive that I think helps the U.S. economy over time. And yeah, there's always, there are always negatives. And, you know, I, what frustrates me the most is, you know, you've got the one, you know, isolated case every month or so where an immigrant commits a crime and it's all over Fox News. And yeah, that's not a good thing. But the fact is, immigrants have a lower crime rate per capita than Americans and native-born Americans. It, I think it's easy to demonize immigrants, even though we're all either immigrants or descendants of immigrants in this country, unless you're, you know, of Native American stock. Right. It's very easy to do it. I think it's human nature. Immigrants are seen as different as the other. I think that's one reason they wrap themselves in the flag so much. Immigrants aside, researchers on totalitarianism pretty much make clear that if you want to become a totalitarian state, if you want to become an authoritarian, you need to identify an other. You can't make Jews the other anymore. Um, and it's a faux pas to make African Americans the other. But it seems to me that the other right now that you can make is to focus on immigrants, that that is an acceptable other to make. And as someone like yourself, whose family fled Cuba because they were deemed the other, who fled Eastern Europe because you were deemed the other, albeit maybe rich barons, as someone like me, whose family is Jewish that fled Eastern Europe because they were the other, I think that it's a very dangerous thing that everybody should be fighting against, whether or not you like immigrants or not. It's dangerous to have any group viewed as the other. Well, I mean, I think that's one reason I was, it was so depressing to see how effectively the Trump administration and some were using immigrants the last four years, immigrants and immigration. It's not so much that my family fled Europe and then Cuba because we were there. We, we fled because of totalitarianism. It's that totalitarianism and especially populist totalitarianism and the Nazis were populists, use immigrants as a way of um, delineating and dividing people. Well, if the Nazis ever win in America, I'm going to have to take this episode down. Um, and maybe you and I will flee to Cuba. Everything but, is on the internet forever, <laughs> Kevin. So we're, what they we're say. Oh, if, yeah. I stop, if I stop paying my Buzzsprout monthly membership, I don't know if okay. that's the case, but we'll, there you go. we'll see. Now, back to immigrants specifically before we before we end this, it is the case, and we're certainly not advocating for illegal immigration, but it is the case that non-citizens, the 10 million or so who do not have status in this country and who are kind of in the under-the-radar economy, are paying taxes, but they will never be able to obtain Social Security. And whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, there's no doubt that it is a factor upholding our Social Security system for, for U.S. Absolutely. citizens. Again, I'm not advocating for open borders, but I don't lose sleep at night over some migrant invasion or over, do we have too many undocumented immigrants here? I don't think that they are a net bad for the country either. And I don't, like, as you pointed out, they're not a net drain financially. And you're giving them, a, they're being given an opportunity and their kids are being given an opportunity. And just because somebody is poor or uneducated doesn't mean they're not going to become a good immigrant or a productive person. It doesn't mean also that their kids are not going to be the ones to discover a cure for cancer because they got educated in a U.S. public school and did well and maybe you know got accepted to 
um, a great college and were they were thereby able to really reach their potential. And you know, we, it's, we know that children of even illegal immigrants or poor immigrants have gone on to found you know major U.S. companies, Fortune 500 companies. You know, contribute to um, medical science and research here. You know, life is very mysterious and unpredictable, and you can't always predict success um, based on somebody's you know profile or their I nine forty four. Right. Uh, which I'll rest in peace, rest in peace. (laughs) Before I let you go, because I think it's important for everyone to know, I don't know if there's a attorney on the planet who has more calls to take than Helena Tetzeli. What advice would you have for young or newer immigration attorneys as they're entering the field? And to the extent there's a difference to young or new female immigration attorneys entering the field? In general, to young attorneys entering the field? I think be realistic. How so? In terms of how you advise your clients and setting their expectations. For women, <laughs> I don't really have it. I, I honestly didn't really experience any real discrimination. I was not a first wave, you know, lawyer, you know, not Sandra Day O'Connor or anything. Uh, there were a lot of women in my law school, and um, I was the only woman at the firm. For a while, I'm still the only female partner. But when I came up, there were a lot of women attorneys in court. I did have one judge who was much older at the time question once whether I was a legal secretary, even though I was there with a briefcase and wearing my suit and had my, you know, documents in hand to argue a motion. But I would say that was kind of a fluke. So I don't really have any advice that's unique to women lawyers. So then I guess just generally, I mean, what's, what is, what are some things that you look for in a good associate, a good new lawyer? What things can lawyers do to make themselves an asset to senior partners? Do your research. Always work on your legal writing. To me, that's a very important skill, being a competent, fluid, persuasive writer. Whether you're writing, you know, a support letter for an L1 visa or a brief or a complaint. So work on your writing to have the, have initiative and be resourceful uh, in terms of figuring out solutions for your clients, Uh, explore different visa options. That's why I think it's important for associates, even if they're going to focus on immigration law to try to be exposed to at least to as many types of um, areas of immigration as possible. You know, don't just pigeonhole yourself as a family practitioner or someone who does naturalization cases. You know, venture out into employment-based immigration, um, crimmigration, uh, removal, federal litigation when you get to that point. Uh, and don't just pigeonhole yourself uh, because it makes you a better lawyer, number one. But number two, it, can, it gives you, you may have options to give your clients that you wouldn't know about unless you had explored this other branch or area of immigration law in terms of finding a solution for a client. So don't stay in your lane. Well, thank you for being with us today, Helena. It was a real pleasure. I really enjoyed this. I hope you did too. I did. I'll talk to you later. So there you have it. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.